Well, let's turn together to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and we'll be seeing today what uh, springs up like living water from what some have called the most important paragraph in the Bible. And that is really kind of a nuclear reaction of grace toward the whole human race. Now hold that thought for a bit. We'll get a running start at our verses for today by pulling it back to the beginning of this powerful paragraph in the Bible for the last time. To be beginning of the paragraph in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then our verses for today. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith is one. God is one. Today we'll be seeing that not only did God's love do anything to justify more mercy in the face of our total depravity, not only did God's love find a way to nullify our pride so he could break through uh, through this master stroke of faith righteousness, on that basis, all this made it possible for his love to amplify grace to the whole human race. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? The Jews, as many of you know, had drawn kind of a line in the sand between themselves and the rest of humanity. It was kind of like apartheid. And those on the wrong side of the tracks, the Gentiles, were literally the untouchables in their opinion. They were almost subhuman, Neanderthals or something, to the point that they actually called them dogs. To which Paul replied, no, God is one. The God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith is one. By which he means to say, kind of in a Jewish way of saying, he's saying, oy vey, who made them anyway? Some other God? 
You think there are two gods, one for the Jews and another for all the rest, or maybe three or four. No, God is one. There is one God who's the God and Father of all, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, and he's not in the least partial to anyone. As he says earlier here in Romans 3, there is no distinction, no uh, discrimination, because there is one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all in all, Ephesians 3, 19, and who through it all in love is upholding everyone down to the very atoms of their being for God so loved the what? World. And then Paul sums up the goal of it all in the next verse, the last verse of this chapter, verse 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. Meganoito in the Greek. That's a very strong, adversive phrase. On the contrary, we establish the law. We, that is you and me, establish the law. Some say that if God loves us, you know, unconditionally the way we are, then it doesn't matter what we do. That's, in effect, what's often being preached these days, where it's all focused on God's love. You know, if it's all by faith and not works, we might as well party hardy the rest of our lives. We can get away with murder if we want, because he'll love us just the same. To which Paul says essentially this at the very end. No, if you truly repent of what you've done and simply accept what he's done, you'll end up establishing the law. If you come to God by faith, based on what Christ has done, more and more you'll become a better person in all that you do by what he does in and through you, if you're really saved. Far from violating the law, increasingly you'll end up vindicating the law, establishing the law as the saint that he knows you can be and that he saved you to become. Because he saw what we could and would become in Christ as we uh, established the law by the power of his spirit. Paul sums it all up by saying, on the contrary, we established the law. After having just said that he's the God of the Gentiles too. And what that means is this. When God extended grace toward us, toward you as a Gentile, he saw you establishing the law. In the same way that he saw you when he justified you back at the beginning of our uh, passage that we've been going through for many months now. If you remember, to justify means to see you now as if you already are what you will one day be. Which is why the Bible says that in God's eyes we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. All of which is to say that he loves you now as if you already are what you will one day be. Or in the words of our verses for today, he sees you establishing the law. Now, let's stop right there. What does this mean practically? Most others, if you're anything like me, most others don't see you that way. Especially those maybe who are closest to you. Probably no one does, but that doesn't matter because there is someone far more important than anyone, than your mother or father or brother or sister or friend or spouse, than all of them together will ever be, someone who's very aware of your sins, but who sees you now, not through your sins, but through the Son, the likes of which he's destined you to become. 
He loves us not just for what we are, but for what we can be, for what we can and will become in Christ. And in him, we can do the same with others. We can bear all things, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and believe all things for those we love, and hope all things because of what God is doing in them, and endure all things from them like he did with us. Because that's how he treats us. Someone said, treat a man as he is. This is one of Julie's favorite quotations. This is what she does. Treat a man as he is or a woman, and he will stay as he is. But if you treat him as if he were what he ought to be and could be, he will become that bigger and better man or woman, which is just what's happening to us thanks to his love. And it can happen to those we love thanks to our love or his love through us. But why does God treat us that way? What's under that? Well, it's a crazy kind of love, or so it seemed to the Jews. Let's get a running start at it. Back to verse 29. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? The Jews couldn't believe their ears. Gentiles too? Paul knows what they'd be thinking, and so he says, yes, of Gentiles also. Again, the Jews viewed the Gentiles as dogs, and understandably so. If the Jews were like you know, the paragon of virtue in the ancient Near East, which they were known for, then the Gentiles were, were more often than not the very picture of vice. Their temples were often full of prostitutes and demon-possessed priests, feasts and festivals where they would get wasted in their minds and they would engage in the most perverted acts with, with their bodies. In Romans 1.29, if you remember, Paul said that they were filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful. These are the dogs. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. On and on it goes, just like we see around us in the world today. The Jews had a, a real problem with that as does the conservative right, which is why they called them dogs in the first place, dogs that would return to their own vomit, like Solomon said, and wallow in their own filth. It took two supernatural visions to get Peter to even go near them, if you remember in the book of Acts, even those that were interested in becoming Christians. And so it can be with us. And his, Peter's prejudice was so strong that even, even after those visions where he said it's okay to mingle with them and eat what they eat and all the rest, even after those two visions, he fell back into keeping his distance and Paul had to rebuke him publicly. Paul has already talked about God's forbearing love in verse 25, the love that let a whole lot slide. And when you add these final verses, what you get is a crazy kind of love that amplifies grace to the whole human race, warts and all, and wants to do it through us too. Which looking at the objects of his love, I'd call crazy. And all you can do is throw up your hands and say, oy vey, love is blind. The bottom line is that it's like he sees the whole of mankind in a crazy falling in love kind of way 
who amplifies grace to all, to Jews and Gentiles alike. And you can only ask, like Samuel Barber did in, in his great hymn, what wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul, oh, my soul, what wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul, what wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul? Why? What wondrous love is this? Well, that's the second thing. The first thing is that in love, he sees us establishing the law. The second thing is that he does this because he's in love. As we get to the heart and soul of these great doctrines, the wellspring of our salvation that created a nuclear reaction of grace toward the whole human race. He's, why? He's in love. The Bible couldn't be more clear. God is in love with us. That's how the scripture describes his love, at least a good part of it. It's a crazy kind of love on the level of being romantic. In fact, in the Song of Songs, Solomon actually compared God's love to romantic love. He said it was the same as romantic love, but hotter. In Song of Song, chapter 8, 6, he says, God, this love I have for the Shulamite woman that I've been telling you about for eight chapters is as strong as death, as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord, which is what the Song of Solomon is ultimately all about. That's why we call someone that we love our flame, right? Because it's like a fire. It's, it's, it's an ember from the fire. Remember what it was like to fall in love? For some of us, it's a kind of a distant memory, but let me remind you about it. Someone said that there's a fine line between falling in love and going insane. <laughs> falling in love is a crazy kind of love. I've done, you know, around 70 weddings over the years, and I've seen it again and again, these star-crossed lovers sitting across the, uh, my desk with rose-colored glasses, and, I, and I'm thinking... If they only knew how long that's going to last. <laughs> they think it's forever, right? They're, they're the exception to the rule. And of course, romantic love doesn't last. It never does. And so we have to go on to just do it whether we feel like it or not. Fake it till you make it, as they say. God never has to fake it. According to the scripture, God's love, agape love, the highest kind of love, unlike some say, is not just an action. No, it's a passion. It's a passion-driven action for God. So love the world, that's the passion that he gave. That's the action. Anything else is substandard. God's love is a passion-driven action that comes from always being in love, with a love that's as fierce as fire. And anything else is substandard again. It's unbelievable. I mean, we can only fall in love mostly with one person at a time for a brief period of time, comparatively speaking. And then we just have to do it when we don't feel like it. He's in love with everyone all the time. Our love is on and off. He's always on. You know, I tell couples that I marry, and I'll usually bring this up in the message, uh, during the wedding, it's easy to fall in love, but it's hard to stay in love. 
Love at first sight is no miracle. It's when two people have been looking together, over bleary-eyed over a breakfast table after countless conflicts after 20 years and are still in love that it becomes a miracle. But not God. He's been looking at the whole human race for a whole lot longer. He had been looking to the whole, at, the, at the whole human race for a whole lot longer than 20 years when he sent his son to die, when he gave, because he so loved. And 2,000 years later, he still views us through rose-colored glasses, through Christ-colored glasses, still loving us for what we can become. Because just like the sun, his love is always on. And the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord through all our depravity. It's like C.S. Lewis said, you ask for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you may have so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect is present. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself. That's who he is, the love that made the worlds. It's the love of a creator who's looking for a bride. A crazy kind of love that looks in the most crazy of places, at the most crazy kind of people to to join the body that we call the bride of Christ, gathered from the highways and byways from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's why throughout the Old Testament we see God as this, so often as this jilted Lover who would do anything to win the bride back. And, and, and get this, here's what he said when they were at their absolute worst. Here's how he felt about, felt about them. How can I give you up, O Ephraim, Hosea 11.8? How can I surrender you, O Israel? My heart is turned over within me. In the face of your depravity, all my compassions are kindled. And that's what sent his son out of that passion. Truly his love is as strong as death, as Solomon said, as the death of his son. Mike Mason described it in a classic book on marriage called The Mystery of Marriage, subtitled As Iron Sharpens Iron. Does that describe a whole lot of it or what? He said, do you remember the first time you held in your arms the strange woman who was to be your wife and she said that she loved you? Do you know that these words come not just from her, but from God? The love between a husband and wife is a participation in the love of God for the whole human race. Anyone who knows this miracle of new marital love can walk down a crowded street and peer into the unfamiliar face of each stranger, whether man or woman, with the secret thrilling knowledge that each one of them at some point in their lives may have been loved rapturously by another human being. Each stranger may be seen from the dazzling perspective of having held an absolutely irreplaceable spot in another's heart. And if not in another man or woman's heart, then in the heart of God. Christian marital love is as close as we are likely to get to heaven on earth for it comes directly from the heart of a God who is love.
So, what do you see when you look at strangers in the street? What do I see? Especially those who God's calling you to help or to share your faith with. Someone who he loves rapturously, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter where they're from, because he knows what in him they can become, Jews and Gentiles alike. It was as crazy as Don Quixote's love in Man of La Mancha, which we began all this with way back in chapter one many months ago. Remember the story? He finds a woman who's living like a dog, and he treats her like God treats us. He calls her my lady, and she says, don't call me your lady. I'm a tramp. I'm a slut. I am only Aldanza. But he sees her differently, and he treats her differently. And that's what she becomes, a Spanish queen who's a type of the bride of Christ. Through a crazy kind of love. Who's crazy, said Don Quixote. Am I crazy because I'm an idealist? Am I crazy because I'm a beautiful dreamer? Because I believe all things and hope all things? Am I crazy because I see the world as for what it could become? Or are you crazy because you see the world only as it is? <laughs> That'll drive you crazy. Seeing the world only as it is or seeing your spouse or your kids or your brothers or your sister or your boss or your mother-in-law or whoever, seeing them only as they are can make you loony. Seeing myself that way just drives me crazy. So what kind of crazy would you rather be, a, a beautiful dreamer you know, or a, a nitpicking Pharisee? How do you see the people that you say you love? Someone said, you need to go into marriage with both eyes open, but then work out your marriage with one eye shut. <laughs> Amen to that? That's how we need to see each other. We need to let a whole lot slide, just like we saw God did, who passed over the sins previously committed. But so many go into marriage, you know, with both eyes shut, like Blind as bats, and then they work out their marriage with, with eyes wide open, wide as magnifying glasses. Because when love fails, as someone said, we perceive all faults and paint all their warts red. I sure do. You go from turning a blind eye to putting them, you know, putting them under a microscope. God knows our love fails, but I praise him that his does not and that he's turning me into the loving person I want to be, that he knows I can be through a crazy kind of love that amplified grace to the whole human race, even to us dogs, so that he could transform us to do the same with others. All of which means this, if you think about it. Love is not, <laughs> love is not blind after all. No, when we fall in love, we are seeing something and feeling something that's true. We're seeing people more like God does. Whose love is not blind, you might say, but rather uh, 
far-sighted rather than near-sighted. Just like ours can be in him as we bear all things like he did and endure all things and believe all things and hope all things. So, really, it boils down to the way we treat one another in his power. But it starts with the way he treats us. How does it work out in practice? Well, we need to let this sink in so we can become like him. So here are two stories. A number of years ago, a woman named Carla Faye Tucker uh, converted to Christianity. I clicked her story uh, from the Houston Chronicle way back in May, March 28th of 1986. It was our first church. It's titled, On Death Row, Pickaxe Murderer Finds a New Life. Carla Faye Tucker is on death row, but she's happy. Tucker, 26, says she's changed in the two and a half years since she was sentenced to die for the pickaxe murders of a Houston man and woman. I was big and bad and mean, but I, and I didn't care, she says. But she's, uh, she says she's different now. She's off drugs, she's found God, and has a new enthusiasm for life and learning. Many of those who have come to know Tucker since her arrest, even the detective who arrested her and the prosecutor who sent her to death row, agree that she's made a dramatic turnaround. Some say she's caring with a tremendous ability to love. They talk about the sparkle in her eyes, her softness, her drive, her growth as a person. They, uh, defense attorneys, prosecutors, a police officer, the U.S. attorney here, really don't want her to die. In her trial, there was no softness, no sparkle. A twisted, pathetic picture of Tucker uh, emerged. Charlie Davidson, a former prosecutor, says, uh, saw Carla Tucker in 1983 and knew he was seeing evil. I remember when she first came into the court, court, her attitude and the way she looked and everything about her was the personification of evil. When she was in the court, at first, you didn't even want to turn your back to her. It was just kind of an invisible cloud surrounding her. I never lose sight of the fact, says John Onkin, a prosecuting attorney, that she killed two people with a pickaxe. But the person who did that, I, the person who did that, I have a terrible dislike for. But the person who is Carla Tucker today is not the same person who was Carla Tucker at that time. Finally, again, a prosecuting attorney. It would be a tremendous loss to me personally if she is executed. I strongly support the death penalty. My fondness for this particular person would not change my mind on that. But this individual person I have come to know and like, she's different now. And if there was some way to sentence to death the person who hacked these people and take the present Carla Faye Tucker and release her, I'd be happy with that. Which is just what happened to us. Christ was sentenced to death for our flesh so we could be freed. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he the God of white people only? Is he the God of good people only? No, yeah, he is the God of pickaxe murderers too. Second story. 
while back, World Magazine, this kind of the time magazine of the Christian world, published an article titled, Would You Forgive This Man? It goes like this. Cain Gwek Eve, now a frail 66, admits responsibility for 12,000 to 14,000 deaths. Three decades ago, known as Comrade Dutch, he ran a Phnom Penh torture center that was the next to last stop for class enemies who were then murdered in the Cambodian communism's killing fields and buried in mass graves. In coming months, the trial of Eve is scheduled to begin. The Cambodian government is finally charging some Khmer Rouge leaders with crimes against humanity and in the process rubbing their noses in the enormity of their evil. Judges, lawyers, and witnesses earlier this year escorted Eve to the scenes of his mass murders. They showed him a tree against which his underlings smashed babies' heads. They showed him a memorial that displays the skulls of thousands of his victims. Eve broke down in sobs, but he did more than that. He knelt on the ground and prayed, because during the 1990s, the torturer had made a profession of faith in Christ. In Western Cambodia, on the other side of the country from where he had been a beast, he had become known as a gentle Christian teacher who walked around with a Bible and helped hungry refugee children. That rededicated lifestyle ended in 1999 while Eve was working for World Vision. A photographer identified him as the master torturer, and Eve confessed immediately, saying, it is God's will that you are here. Christopher Lapeel, the pastor who had baptized him, said, he was shocked when I found out who he really was because what he did was so evil. Lapeel had a great reason for fierce anger. Eve had, and his revolutionary colleagues had killed Lapeel's parents, brother, and sister during the 1975 to 79 Red Terror. But upon reflection, Lapeel's reaction changed. It's amazing. It's a miracle. Christianity changes people's lives. If Jesus can change Eve, he can change anyone. The Cambodian courts will now deal with the issue of punishment. Eve has told reporters, I have done very bad things in my life. Now it is time to bear the consequences of my actions. And I gladly do so. So, would you forgive this man? It's crazy. God did in a crazy kind of love. And that's what happens when he takes even the lowest and the meanest of lawbreakers and establishes the law in them to make them the greatest and kindest law abiders. And that's just the beginning, what we saw in Carla Fay and Eve, because he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6, when we will all become all that this beautiful dreamer wants us to be, and that'll be called glory for all eternity. And all we can say is what we sing, the love of God, 
is greater far than tongue or pen can tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Amazing grace. How can it be that saved a a wretch like me? We're all Eve. You know, we're often accused of being so narrow-minded as Christians, so exclusive, so prejudiced, so judgmental, which we sure can be, just like the Pharisees. But it is far from Christianity at its best. In fact, true Christianity has always been the source of just the opposite. Just look at what William Wilberforce did to abolish the slave trade, and Abraham Lincoln, and John Henry Newman. Just look at C.T. Studd, and Hudson Taylor, and and William Carey, and Amy Carmichael, and and Mother Teresa, and all those who went to Africa, and China, and to, to the untouchables of India. Just look at the early Christian church where, where rich and poor and slave and free worship to, together, Jew and Gentile alike, side by side. Where Tertullian said, it is, our kind, it is our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of those who oppose us. Just look at what Johnny Erickson Tata does with the disabled. It's like Steve Green used to sing, when you help the helpless, this is true Christianity. Whatever you do to the least of these, the, the ones who are most in the gutter, you've, you've done it unto me. It's what we do at Lago Vista and room for hope, and house of neighborly service. And there's much more than that, of course, and we've only just begun. It's our fifth and final value, our core value as a church, engaging our world, engaging our neighbors, the underserved around us, and the nations, sharing the truth of the gospel with love in action that comes from his passion. And in this next chapter of our life together, we're going to go for it like never before by being a disciple-making family, as our mission says, a disciple-making family for Loveland and the world. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for your crazy kind of love that justifies mercy and nullifies our pride and amplifies grace to the whole human race. And can it be that we should gain an interest in our Savior's blood? Amazing love. How can it be? Help us to connect with it deeply and to Give it away generously. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.